Um, as you know, we're, we're in uh, a seven-week scripture series, a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and t- today is week number five in that uh, sermon series. The, the series is entitled Making Him Known, uh, which, is, which is really who we want to be as uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ, people who make him known. And so we're all together being equipped uh, to be people who make Jesus known through the Gospel of Mark. We envision that the Gospel of Mark is a great way to, uh, to introduce people to Jesus in one-on-one Bible study or small group evangelistic Bible studies. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at a middle section of Mark's Gospel. This is a well-defined section that stretches uh, from the end of chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel to the end of chapter 10. And, uh, you know, leading up to this middle section, Mark has, has just done a amazing job showing us the, the sweeping authority of this promised Christ, who uh, Christ means anointed one or Messiah, this, this first century Jewish man who was named Jesus, who was not just a man, but he was the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. He was the promised one. And so what we're about to hear this morning is a, a, a significant expansion in how Jesus presents his role and his mission as the Messiah. So Jesus is, is about to just completely redefine uh, his person as, as the Christ and, and his mission as the Christ. And then also, just in general, what leadership and greatness means in the kingdom of God. And, and this is going to just completely redefine what following Jesus means, what discipleship means. And it's also going to give us clarity in who we are as sinful humans. Jesus specifically takes up that kind of line of teaching three times in this center section of Mark's gospel. And Sarah Rutman will read that first example. Uh, This is our main text. Uh, This is chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And and then Abby will read the third time that Jesus takes up uh, this redefinition of leadership, this redefinition of his role as the Messiah from the end of Mark chapter 10. So listen to how Jesus characterizes himself and listen to how he redefines true greatness, true safety, and, and his, also his role in his kingdom. And then our third reading comes from Revelation chapter 12. Rob's going to read that for us. And those two verses are, are kind of like a sneak preview of the, the, the call of Jesus Christ being fulfilled in heaven, the eternal security and eternal victory that, that Jesus is calling his disciples to. And then Don is going to read Romans 12, 1 through 2, and that passage helps us to understand that, that uh, as Jesus commands us to take up a cross and follow him, that's not just all you know pain and darkness, but it's also a thankful response to a beautiful, loving Savior. It's a, it's a path of, of God's blessing. It's a path of God's goodness. Yes, there's sacrifice, but there's also joy. And so Romans 12 will help us to consider that. So I invite you to prepare your hearts, and then I want to invite Sarah to read uh, from Mark chapter 8. Mark eight twenty seven to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to prevent to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, kids, when you uh, when you learn more complicated math equations, uh, you need to have some rules to figure out how to work all the different terms, right? So, if you have a a long string of an equation. You need some kind of an orderly path to work that through to get a correct answer, right? That plan is called the order of operations. So first you work the parts of the problem that are in the parentheses, then you do the exponents, then you do multiplication and division, and then you finish with addition and subtraction, right? So if you jump too soon into the wrong part of the equation, you're going to obtain a faulty result. You will not, you will not solve that mathematical expression correctly. So your understanding of the value of the equation will be fundamentally flawed, right? Now, I think Jesus in our main text this morning is doing something rather similar. I think through the inspired writing of Mark, Jesus is is speaking to us this morning that we need to follow an order as we understand who he is and who we are. So first, we need to understand the identity of Jesus Then we need to understand the mission of Jesus. Then we need to know ourselves in relation to who he is and what he's doing. And then lastly, and only then, are we able to understand rightly how to follow him, how to to respond to him. And so, just to simplify, I think Jesus is saying, know my identity, 
Know my mission. Know yourself. And then follow me. Know my identity. Know my mission. Know yourself and follow me. So I just want to give you like kind of like a high-level overview of the text, and then we'll dive in a little bit more specifically. So uh, again, we're in Mark chapter 8. That's our primary text. It's the last section in that chapter. Um, and so in the, in the first section, verses 27 through 30, in your, you know, in your Bible, that might even be kind of a separate little uh, paragraph, Jesus is asking who people say he is, then he asks the disciples who uh, they say he is, and Peter speaks for them and says, you are the Christ. So that's the identity of Jesus. We need to know the identity of Jesus. In the second section of the text, so this would be like verses 31 through 33, Jesus is teaching the disciples about his mission. He's saying, this is what the Christ does. This is what I'm about to do. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. Now clearly that's not what Peter had in mind, but that is what Jesus teaches and rebukes Peter for his erroneous mindset. Now, knowing the mission of Jesus helps us to know ourselves, our own identity. We realize that we're in big trouble (laughs) if it requires the suffering and death of the Messiah to fix what's wrong with us. Now, finally, we're ready to see the call of Christ, how to follow him. So the last section of that main text Verses 34 through 38 show the call of Christ to those who would follow him. So Jesus is teaching us what it means to be his disciple. So that's the the flow through the text, order of operations. First, know his identity as the Christ. Second, know his mission as the Savior. Third, know your identity as a sinner. And then fourth, you're finally ready to hear his call to follow him. So let's start with point number one, know his identity as the Christ. Now, This is not the only way that uh, Mark establishes the identity of Christ. In fact, the whole first eight chapters of this gospel are really doing that. They're pointing to the power, the authority of Jesus. They're pointing to his fulfillment of prophecy, how he is stepping not into a vacuum, but into this whole arc of God's plan of redemption. He's the promised Messiah. He's not just a random Messiah. He's He's the chosen one. He's the one whom all of the dysfunction and sin of the Old Testament was pointing. Like, we need a Savior. And here he is. He's the Christ. Now the disciples are starting to get it. They're starting to. But Jesus is going to reveal that they don't have the full picture yet. So let's read that first section, Mark eight twenty-seven through 30, again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. At verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, is regarded by many to be the the center point of this entire gospel. You might say that the book divides into two halves. One, where we reveal who Jesus is, or Mark reveals who Jesus is, and then this point is when the disciples really publicly, well, at least in, in their small group, acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. 
And I want you to know that question from Jesus is still ringing out today. This is the question that every human needs to hear and every human needs to answer. Who do you say that I am? And that's not a question you can answer quickly or flippantly. That's a question that we're going to see from our text that you really answer with more than just words. It's a question that you answer with your life. What do the desires of your heart say about who Jesus is? What does the way you spend your time say about who Jesus is? In fact, what does the trajectory of your life say about who Jesus is? This is the Messiah who's about to say, take up your cross and follow me. Now, could anyone see from observing your life that you believe Jesus is the Christ? I hope so. It's a beautiful thing. We are each asked this morning, who do you say that I am? Now, here's Peter's answer. He functions as a spokesperson for the entire disciple team. He says, you are the Christ. That, that's, that's a word that we overuse. But that, that's like a bomb going off linguistically. To say to a human being, a man standing in front of you, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, that's a massive claim. This is a big deal. He's saying, Jesus, you're the anointed one. You're the royal son of God. You're the one on whom the spirit of God rests. You're the one on whom the favor of the father rests. You're the one that the prophets were pointing to. You're the promised Messiah. You are the Christ. All that is just wrapped up and folded much more into that word, Christ. And Jesus accepts that declaration. He agrees with Peter's statement. But again, Peter and the rest of the disciples are only just starting to understand the identity of Jesus. They don't yet understand his mission. They're starting to understand who he is, but not what he's going to do. And we can see that very clearly in the last verse of this section, verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Doesn't that sort of seem out of place? Like, Peter's just made this magnificent confession. I figured it out. You're the Christ. And then Jesus puts a gag order on him? (laughs) That seems anti-evangelistic, right? Why does Jesus command the disciples to tell no one about his identity? Because they don't understand his mission. They're starting to understand his identity but they don't understand his mission. So that's point number two. Know his mission as the suffering servant. So Jesus begins to clarify his mission. He begins to expand and unfold the role of the Christ, the role of the Messiah. So let's look at verse 31. And he began, apparently this wasn't like the the thrust of his teaching up until this point, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus has a shocking mission. I want us to feel that this morning. This is a shocking mission. He's going to express his identity as the royal divine Messiah by enduring much suffering, having shame and humiliation heaped on his head, He's going to be killed. I mean, that, is, that should shock us afresh this morning. What, what is going on here? I mean, this guy has the power to feed multitudes. 
He has the, the compassion and the power to heal the sick. He, he orders mighty storms to be still, and the wind and the waves obey his voice. His gentle touch brings even the dead to life. And at the command of his voice, demons flee. This guy has power. This guy has authority. How's he going to use that? What's he going to do with it? He's going to bow down under the lash. He's going to let his ears be filled with mocking taunts and curses. He's going to let his royal head be struck again and again. He's going to be slowly, painfully, publicly tortured to death. The disciples just have no category for that kind of power leading to that kind of suffering. Do you? Again, Peter and the disciples were starting to understand the identity of Jesus, but not the mission of Jesus. The disciples probably thought that their biggest problem was that the monarchy of Israel had collapsed and that they had been overrun by their enemies. And they had a small kind of victory that they thought the Messiah was going to aim towards. You know, freedom from Roman oppression and national prominence again, a monarchy being restored. Jesus had a way bigger plan of victory than that. The disciples had no concept of how desperate their condition was spiritually before God. They had no idea how deep their subjection to sin was before a holy God. They had no idea who the true enemy, who the true oppressor was. It wasn't Rome. It was sin. So why did Jesus silence the disciples in verse 30? Because they barely glimpsed how his identity would lead to his suffering. They didn't hardly understand his mission at all. So kids, it's hard to find an analogy for this, but, but imagine you have a group of friends who discover that one among their number is a Marvel superhero. Imagine you are in a, a situation where you've got bullies at school, and you find that one of your friends is the Black Panther. Like, awesome! Let's go bust some heads, right? But then imagine the Black Panther says to you, listen, the first head that's going to be busted is mine. Does that compute? Not really. That's not what superheroes do, right? And I think that might help you understand how confused the disciples were. That's why Peter tried to correct Jesus. He's like, oh, this is taking a bad path. Like, we need to get back on track. Jesus, we're busting heads here, okay? All right, so let's read how uh, Mark 10, 31 and 32 and 33 play out. All right, so he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This was no secret. This was a big, open discussion. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Apparently, 
Jesus does not take kindly to misrepresentations of his mission. He does not take kindly to people trying to push him off his course to redeem a people for God the Father. Jesus is kind of saying in effect here, like, I am not limited to who you imagine me to be. I am not who you merely want me to be. I am not conformed to your daydreams for my power. I am who I say that I am. I will do what I say that I will do, and I will define my mission. Not you, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Trying to define the mission of Jesus without reference to his suffering, his death, and his resurrection is satanic. Jesus says that Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God, but he was setting his mind on the things of man. That's that's what we need, part of what we need to be rescued from. So I just want, you to, just want you to extrapolate that a little bit. If trying to define the work and person of Jesus without a cross and an empty grave is satanic, what does that mean about people who present Christ as just a great moral teacher? If somebody says Jesus is just a great moral teacher, he's an ethical genius, but nothing more. I believe, based on this text, that that is satanic. That's wicked. It's evil. To, to redefine Jesus as a great moral teacher uh, is, is something that Jesus would rebuke harshly. Now, uh, let's extrapolate that to another example. What about people who present Jesus as just kind of like your personal superhero, your lucky talisman? You know, you follow what he says, and then everything's going to work out for you, right? If you present Jesus as a person who will just set your right or set your wrongs right and, you know, make you richer, more successful, more popular, more powerful. That's wicked. That's satanic. That's called the prosperity gospel, that Jesus came to make our lives easy and comfortable and prosperous and happy, and, and yeah, we're all just going to party until we, you know, see him face to face. That is not what Jesus is presenting in our text. God detests it. We don't get to define Jesus. Jesus defines Jesus. The Word of God defines Jesus. We don't get to specify the mission of Jesus. Jesus defines his mission. The Word of God defines his mission. So if you're thinking of Jesus as merely a great moral teacher this morning, or if you're thinking of him as someone who wants to make your life prosperous and and easy, I just want you to see from the text that Jesus leaves no room for either of those options. Jesus is the Christ, yes, but Jesus came to suffer and die. We need to know his identity. We need to know his mission. And only then can we know ourselves. So let's ask the question, why? Why a cross? Why did Jesus say that he must suffer and die? Did you hear that in our text? Uh, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. Why a cross? Well, the disciples actually couldn't even answer that question because their mind were set on earthly things, as the text says. In order to understand the mission of Jesus, we have to understand the things that matter to God, right? We have to to look to the heavenlies. We have to look to God's revealed truth and see what are his priorities. What does he say is wrong with us? So let's look down at verse 38. I'm just going to pull one phrase out of verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What kind of generation did Jesus come to? What kind of people? Adulterous and sinful. That's who Jesus came to. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for spiritual adulterers like me and like you. The relationship between God and the people that he created was supposed to be like a a beautiful, peaceful marriage. But our sin means that we're repeatedly unfaithful to God. We turn our back on the God who made us and loves us, and we chase after false gods. We chase after idols. We love things and worship things other than the one true God. Spiritual adultery. Now, in a human marriage, you know that adultery has grave consequences, right? There's massive consequences for a human marriage when there's adultery. But spiritual adultery towards God is even worse. That's setting your mind on things of God, right? Spiritual adultery adultery is even worse. God can't take it lightly. God shouldn't take it lightly. Just like you can't fix a broken marriage quickly and easily, You can't fix a broken relationship between a holy God and a sinful human easily either. It's even harder. Now think about about what we deserve to hear. If we are spiritual adulterers, if we turn our backs on God and go after other loves, other, other pleasures, other idols, what do we deserve to hear from God? We deserve to hear from God, this relationship is over. Get out of my sights. Get out of my house. Get out of my bank account. Get out of my life. That's what spiritual adulterers deserved here from God. Now, there's only one place to go if God casts you out. That's hell. There's only one place to go if God throws you out of his goodness, throws you out of his presence, throws you out of his glory throws you out of his light, throws you out of his life. That is what we deserve. That is the normal state of our relationship with God as a sinful people. Who can fix that? Only a Messiah, the Christ, on a mission to redeem sinners. There's only one person who can fix this broken relationship. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, stepped into this horrible, painful breach between God and sinners, and he was the only one who could repair it. But it would cost him his life. It would cost him his life. So the cross of Christ was necessary. It was not one option of many. God didn't thumb through a Rolodex of solutions and say, yeah, let's pick this one. No, there was one option on the table. There was one man who could do this. It was the only way for a guilty, adulterous bride to be reconciled to God as her husband. The breach was so big that the solution had to be that massive. When we see the identity of Jesus and we see the mission of Jesus, we understand that sin is worse than we think. That's why the price for our redemption is higher than we can imagine. That's why Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, 
must be rejected, must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Because the cross was the only way for Jesus to save us. What incredible love. What incredible compassion. The cross of Christ is triumphant and beautiful. It is a powerful Savior rescuing a wicked people. The cross is a beautiful and mighty, mighty accomplishment. Now, it should be no surprise, since the cross is so central to the mission of Jesus, that it would be central to our following the Savior. Let's just review our order of operations here, all right? We've seen the the powerful identity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. We know the mission of Jesus to suffer and die, to reconcile guilty sinners to God. And we know now our identity. We are adulterous sinners who need a Savior. And we're finally ready. We're finally ready to hear Jesus call us to follow him. So let's listen to that call in Mark. This is 8, 34 through 37. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? Really isn't that out of place for Jesus to say that following him should mean taking up a cross, taking up an instrument of death, taking up an instrument of torture. Why? Because there are things in me that need to die before they kill me. And there are things in you that need to die before they kill you. The stakes are that high. Eternity is on the line. That is the peril that Jesus stepped into. The solution is to repent and to believe. What does that look like? In the context of taking up a cross, well, following Jesus means saying this with your life. I renounce the parts of me that don't love God. Renounce that part of me. I want the spiritually adulterous elements of me to die. The desires in me that used to chase after other lovers, other gods, is crucified with Christ. I am not my own. I've been ransomed by Jesus. He bought me with his blood. He gave himself for me, and now I give myself to him with nothing held back. I am a new creation. So following Jesus changes everything. It has to. It means turning away from all the sinful things we used to treasure and prioritize and worship and turning to God alone in fidelity in honor, in purity. It might be painful, but it's the path to eternal life. 
Something in us needs to die before it kills us. And that something is sin. The cross of Christ makes that possible. It bids us to come and to die and to find that we may truly live. This is so appropriate, right? A student is not above their teacher. A slave is not above their master. Jesus is just simply saying in a more profound and expansive way, follow me. I'm leading the way. Follow me. Now, in one sense, this is a, this is a heavy word from Jesus. Take up a cross. Walk on the path to your own execution. That's a heavy word. And I don't want to diminish that. It should land on us hard. But thanks be to God, these are not the only words of Christ. These are not the only words that reveal the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and who we are and how we should respond. It's not just the warnings of Christ that prompt us to pick up a cross and follow him. It's not just the eternal dangers of sin. That is all true. And and we dare not reduce this call to merely an obligation to just mindlessly do horrible things. You are not called to just mindlessly do painful things. That is not what this is saying. There's much more. This is also a call to see the beauty and the triumph and the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the love of Jesus that tenderly draws us to himself to follow him with wholehearted devotion. This is calling us to a beautiful path that encompasses our entire lives. Now remember, Jesus came to a wicked and adulterous generation. What was his posture? How how did he come? What, What was the tone of his coming? Listen again to Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, his favorite title for himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come to take our lives. He came to give his life. He didn't come to exact payment from us. He came to make payment for us. That's beautiful. That's compassionate. That's powerful. That's loving. Jesus is exactly the kind of leader you should wholeheartedly follow. Nothing held back. That's who he is. Jesus is just asking us to respond rightly to him. No more, no less. Just respond rightly to him. Now you can see a beautiful depiction of that in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 through 2 Uh, states it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. How does the author make his appeal? Not by guilt, but by the mercy of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
That's a pretty sweeping suggestion or command, right? Present your entire body as a living sacrifice. But don't disconnect the two, right? I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How does God feel about that? Well, when we come to him through Christ, it's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is beautiful in God's sight. This is why we were made. <laughs> this is why we were redeemed. We're fulfilling true humanity as led by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to this world. It's very similar to what uh, Jesus told Peter. Don't, don't think about the things of humanity, the things of this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be made new by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Following Jesus is costly, but following Jesus is good and acceptable and perfect and pleasing to God. So in view of his mercy, in view of his compassion, in view of his grace, in view of his cross, Let's offer everything to him, even our bodies, as living sacrifices, not as an empty duty, but as holy and acceptable worship to the God who ransomed us, ransomed us by the life of his own son. So together, let's take up the beautiful, powerful cross of Jesus and show the world that we no longer worship idols. We worship Jesus. We love him. We serve him. We honor him. We obey him. Come and die with Jesus and walk in the life-giving will of God, enjoying what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we do that? Start by seeing the powerful identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. Then know the mission of Jesus to suffer and die on a cross to reconcile guilty sinners to God, then you can know truly your identity as an adulterous sinner who needs to be rescued by Jesus. And then finally, you can follow Jesus by joyfully yet sacrificially picking up a cross and following him. Let's pray now that God would empower us to do that, other churches in our region to do that, brothers and sisters around the world to do that. I'm going to lead in prayer, and then I invite you to pray out loud prayers of confession, prayers of repentance, and prayers of petition of our great God. If he can do this through the death of Christ, he can do anything that he desires to glorify our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, you did not even spare your own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It's in that heart that I come to you in confession, God. I I do not love your son as much as I should. I am drawn to the pleasures of this world, Lord. Knowledge, entertainment, comfort, and pleasure, and ease are all seducing me, Lord God. And I repent. 
I want my heart to be wholly devoted to you, Jesus. Wholly devoted. Please come and seal me for your courts, Lord God. Help me to love and honor and obey you with my whole heart, with my whole life. Lord God, hear us now as we pray to you together.